This morning is kind of a teaching, and it's kind of an exercise also, and that's where these handouts come in. Um, I confess when I go to hear someone speak, I want to be the audience. I don't want to be manipulated or, or audience participation is not my favorite thing. But I ask that you'd indulge me today for your benefit. Uh, grab one of these. We'll work through this here in just a little bit as we go through our time, the teaching time this morning. If you read the newspaper just in the last day or so, I heard this on the news. Welcome back, Matt. Good to see you. Uh, on the news on the radio, uh, Bob Fredericks, the former athletic director at KU, died suddenly, apparently a lifelong cyclist. He was riding the streets of Lawrence on his bike and... Uh, Topeka has nothing over Lawrence in this, I guess. He hit a large pothole. Did you guys hear this on the news? He flipped over his bicycle and was killed. Um, I'm assuming he had no helmet on because the news said he died of massive head injuries. He had cycled all his life. The news said he he had had some, some more minor accidents in the past, but this accident took his life. He was a very fit 69 years old, and I'm assuming he was looking forward to many more healthy years on the earth, of course, none of which he'll see now. Last week, many of you are already aware of this and prayed for me and for others about this. I helped lead a memorial service Wednesday for Jacob Rostick. Jacob was a Czech Republic citizen who transferred to Washburn University two years ago. He was a trumpet player, played with Juan at uh, Washburn. Jacob was coming back with two others from Washburn University almost, it's got to be a couple weeks ago now. 23-year-old guy, you know, the rest of his life in front of him, and they break down. They're on an access road off of I-70, and a freak accident. He is literally standing on the side of his road with his eyes closed playing his trumpet when he is struck and killed by a car. And this young guy, it looks like his whole life's ahead of him. And it's not. It's over at 23. Or Frederick's the same thing. And I've said this before. I was a city firefighter for many years. And I would wonder when I attended this shooting victim or this accident victim that's either dying or dead, the first thought in my mind, or one of them is, did they know this was their last day on the earth? Did they know when they got up this morning they would never see another day on this earth? This was it. This was the last day of their life. Hank Nelson helped and just did a great job opening up and closing Jacob's memorial service. And one of the things Hank shared was from Ecclesiastes 7, which I'll read here. It's better to go to a house of mourning, and this is mourning, M-O-U-R-N, sorrow, the place of death. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. In other words, funerals and memorial services remind us of what our end is, that we have an end. And it's to join that person where they're mourning in the grave, our life over. A couple verses later, it says, The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. And again, the thought is this, that I can only live life wisely if I do so anticipating my own death. I can only live life here well and wisely if I'm doing so recognizing my own mortality and the fact that my days here on the earth are short, relatively speaking. There is nothing like death 
to focus or refocus our eyes on the things in this life or this lifetime that are important. And you know, unless the rapture of the church occurs soon, let's say, uh, all of us in this room are going to die. And they're going to have our memorial service or our funeral. And others are going to lay us to rest. And to live with that in view helps us to live life, Ecclesiastes says, wisely. Now, the sudden deaths grab our attention in ways that prolonged deaths don't. In other words, if I'm sick and, and everyone knows I have cancer, they're sort of anticipating death over a long period of time. The sudden ones just take us by shock and by storm because we're not anticipating them in any way. When we heard about Jacob's death, we're, you're stunned, you're incredulous. You don't really believe that it's true what you've just heard. Frederick's family, I'm sure, felt the same way about him. But you know, for us in, in this room, none of us knows here when we'll die or how we'll die. And it could be suddenly, like Jacob's or like Mr. Frederick's. It could be on a day when we get up, everything's normal, and we don't finish out that day. Or, like others, it might be after prolonged illness or sickness where we know we're going to die and we have time to prepare for that and others around us do as well. We simply don't know. But I'm convinced that in order to live life well and successfully, especially in the ways that really matter, that we have to do so in view of our own death and our own mortality. We should live like we're dying. That's the theme. We should live like we're dying. So just to put you in the right frame of mind for this, if you went to a doctor today and he told you you have a terminal illness, you have one year to live, how would that affect the way you live this last year of your life? If you know, I've got one year to live, what does that do to your thoughts about the life you have left on the earth? For some of us, we might say, I feel like I'm doing everything I know to. It might have very little impact. For other, others of us, we might say, man, there's major changes I need to make. But that would be wise because, again, to live life well, we've got to do so with the thought of our own death in mind. You've got a sheet, and we're going to go over that. We'll actually work through that here in just a few moments. Um, and kind of setting the stage for that. When you look in the scriptures, there's no better model of living like you're dying than the Lord himself. And I'll grant on the front end, uh, Jesus was unique. I mean, there's things about his life and his death that were absolutely unique to him. would never be true of anyone else. He's God the Son on earth for starters. He knows when he's going to die. He knows where he'll die. He'll know, he knows how he'll die. So that's all different from us. But the, the main theme of... He lived his life in view of his death is what I want to take home today. So, for instance, in Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Here, especially at the tail end of his life, everything he says and does is in light of his impending crucifixion. And he's telling the disciples about it before it happens. This is what's going to happen. In Luke 9.51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, and the word here could either mean his being raised up on the cross or his resurrection, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. 
again, uniquely for Jesus, his death was the point of his being on the earth. That's not the point for most of us. Our death doesn't accomplish redemption. For him, that was the point. But he was determined to go to Jerusalem because that was God's will for his life. And so in his life, and then in his death, he was going to make sure that he'd lived in a way that fulfilled all of his father's plans. And then last, Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So even from the beginning of his life, Jesus was the baby born to die. And he knew that. And so he gauged his life accordingly. And of course, he he called disciples to himself. He entrusted the message of truth, God's words to his disciples as well, so that when he was gone, they would be there, they would represent him. But just the key point that all of his life was lived in view of his death. And that's what gave substance and clarity to everything he was doing in his time on the earth. Remember on the cross when Jesus says, It is finished. He's talking probably specifically about redemption or atonement. But basically he knew everything God the Father had appointed for his life on earth was done. And my goal for us this morning is that whether we live long or short, at the end of our life we would be able to say with Jesus those same words, it is finished. Not in the sense that we're accomplishing redemption, but in the sense that, Lord, as far as I've known and as far as I was able, I've accomplished all the things you gave me to do in this short life I had on the earth. You see the same thing, the same sense of purpose related to living and dying when you read about Paul. And I'll just share briefly from him in Philippians 3. Paul's talking about life, the big picture, and he says this at verse 12, I haven't already obtained it, that is the resurrection. I haven't already become perfect, but I'm pressing on so that I can lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by... Christ. I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I'm doing one thing. I forget what lies behind. I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, all my former life before my conversion, it's history. It's in the rubbish can. It's all gone. I've forgotten all that. I've put it all behind me. Now there's only one thing I do. I'm reaching forward to lay hold of Christ just as Christ has laid hold of me. That's what frames my life, Paul says. And later, his swan song, his last letter, 2 Timothy, he says this in chapter 4, I am being poured out as a drink offering. And you remember in the sacrificial systems, you not only burned animal carcasses, but you took drinks and you poured them out at the altar. And Paul says... I'm like an offering being made to God. I'm being poured out. My life is being poured out here in my impending death. Already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. This would be his execution. And he says this to Timothy. This is his bottom line. My death is almost here. My life is spent. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the race. And for Paul, this is no small thing. I have fought the good fight. I mean, if you put that in the context of his life, you know, this is the guy that's beaten and stoned and whipped and in prison time after time. For him, life really was a fight. It was, com- it was combat just to stay alive. Life was a fight, he said, and I stayed in the ring. I didn't check out early. Or life was a race. And for Paul, this was a grueling marathon. A grueling marathon, a long time at this. 
He didn't give up. And the last thing he says is that he had kept the faith. And for him, this was all important. I don't know what your experience with Christians has been in the past, but um, occasionally you might meet someone you knew uh, as a Christian before and they'll have checked out entirely. Um, that they, they don't claim to be a Christian anymore. They don't walk with Christ anymore. This is the opposite of what Paul said here. I've kept the faith. For him, that was all that really mattered at the end of the day. I'm connected to Christ. Christ is connected to me. That's the bottom line. I've kept the faith. So for Paul, at the end of his life, he can say, basically, I have no regrets. Because I lived my life like I was dying, like any day could be my last. And so... My life's going to be taken in short order here. I'm good to go. I'm ready. I fought the fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. If you've got your handouts, and sorry, I should have made more, but if you've got your handouts, look at that now if you would. If you have a pen, entertain me at least, and write your name on the line underneath RIP. That's your gravestone. That's your tombstone. That's your gravestone. Write your name in there if you've got a pen. Not, Of course, you can do as much of this as you'd like to later. It's an exercise for your benefit, not mine. And you'll see there's room on the, the gravestone underneath that. Think about this just as we're talking briefly. On your gravestone, what would you like your epitaph to be? What would you like your epitaph to be on your gravestone? A line, a word, a phrase, a sentence. Something short, short enough to fit on that stone. Something that you could literally, physically write in that small area on that gravestone. What would you want your epitaph to be? And think of this. This is actually kind of difficult. Because in an epitaph, we're trying to render someone's life down, some key elements of their life down to capture in one phrase or a few sentences, something very brief. That's hard to do for anyone. But we're really talking about what were the key elements of this person's life? What really made them who they were or what they did? Let me give you a couple examples I looked at online. Abigail Adams' epitaph is, As daughter, wife, and mother, a model of domestic worth, her letters are an American classic. So this identifies her what? Daughter, wife, and mother. All feminine roles, by the way. That she, her role in life was with those around her. And she had a legacy to literally the country that she was connected to as well through her letters. Her husband says, John Adams says this, signer of the Declaration of Independence, framer of the Constitution of Massachusetts, second president of the United States. And you get the picture. Here's a guy whose life was all tied up in starting states and nations. I mean, when you think of the, the beginning, the birth of the United States of America, John Adams is there and his epitaph relates that. If you go to Washington, D.C., to the tomb of the unknown soldier, you'll read this. Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. This person who's died in combat, and that's all we know about them. And so we identify them as a soldier known to God, but not necessarily known to us. Their epitaph. Last one I'll share is Christopher Wren. Wren was the architect of much of a London. That If you go to London today, one of his key buildings was St. Paul's Cathedral and where he's buried. And his epitaph there reads in Latin, Lector si monumentum requires circumspecie. 
And if we translate it, reader, if you seek his monument, look around. He's in the, buried in the cathedral which he designed. So if you render your life down to some essence, an epitaph, what would it read? What would you like it to read? What would someone else render the essence of your life down to? More important than that, than words on a stone. Uh, if you died tomorrow and you see Christ face to face, what would you like Him to say to you? What would you like Christ or God the Father to say to you when you see them face to face in heaven? Your life on the earth is over. Face to face with them, what would you like them to say to you at the end of the day? And then ask yourself this. Would the Lord Jesus or would God the Father be free to say those things to you that you'd like to hear? Would they be free to? Could they? Would they be able to? Could they say, well done, good job? Would that be true of your life? Or anything else you'd like to hear? Whatever approval, whatever key elements you thought was important in your life, could they say that? What would you like God to be able to say to you? And would, would God be free to say that to you now as your life has been lived? I'm sure why I'm getting that. Let's try this. How about this? One day, assuming that you die, uh, that the Lord doesn't take us home first, uh, people are going to stand around your funeral, your memorial service. What are they going to be thinking? What will they be saying? What's your testimony? What testimony are you leaving with others on the earth? What does your life communicate to others? When I ask this, I'm not getting at do people like you. I'm not getting at do, uh, uh, does no one find fault with you. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not talking about little things. I'm saying big picture things. What does your life communicate to others? So that when they think about you, when they sing your praises, when they eulogize you, say those good words about your life, what will they say? What will they be thinking? What is the testimony that your life will leave behind? When you're gone, what will others remember? What songs would you like sung at your funeral? What songs would communicate to those that are still living things that you found important? What texts of Scripture would you like read at your memorial? What Scriptures would tell others things that were important to you in life? Or what Scriptures might others associate with your life when you're gone? I did an exercise briefer than this uh, a couple years ago in which I just asked myself these two key questions. My life will be successful if you say, my life, I could count my life a success if I do these things. You know, for Paul, it's framed in this language of, of competition, of um, fighting and racing and keeping hold of something. If you, you look at your life and you say, Lord, I think my life would be successful if I did what? If I finished what? Does that make sense? What in my mind do I understand makes my life a success? Conversely, my life would be a failure if what? 
Uh, remember, two of my answers on that one were, uh, if I became a cynic, if I became hardened to life, I'd, I'd feel like a failure. If I had moral failure, I would feel like <laughs> I'd blown. I was a failure. My life had been a failure. What would you write in there? Um, related to gift and calling, what do you think God has gifted you and called you to do? If you're a Christian, you have a gift because you have the Holy Spirit, and you're a member of Christ's body. And he, he frames that in different, different ways in different places. It's like you're a stone in a building. You occupy a particular place and sphere. Or it's like a member in a body, like a finger or an eye or a nose or an ear, whatever. In that same kind of way as a Christian, you occupy a very specific place in the body of Christ, which means God has called you and He's gifted you to do certain things. Many of us don't know what those things are. And if you don't, you need to pray about that and ask God to show you what those things are. But what is my gift and calling in life? If I don't know what God wants for me or from me, it's pretty hard to find what success is, isn't it? I've got to have some sense of what God's purpose for my life is if I'm going to live life successfully. And defining my gift and calling, what am I doing to fulfill those? So that at the end of the day, God can say, yes, Junior, well done. You, you did the thing I gave you to do. You filled that niche that I created just for you. And last, these two questions. In order to live well and die well, I need to start doing what? That is, if I assess my life today and I say, you know, I just feel like I'm not engaged in the things or the ways or the sphere God wants me to be, what do I need to start doing? What do I need to engage in? The flip side of that is, in order to live well and die well, what do I need to stop doing? Time is the most precious commodity anyone has. Money is not. You know, something is valued by uh, its supply. Time is irreplaceable. You can't replace a second of your life. You, you and I spend it. Every day we're spending the most important commodity we have. It's time. What are you doing? What am I doing? How are we spending the time God has given us? What do we need to start doing? What do we need to refrain from doing in order that we can fulfill God's purpose for our life? Uh, George Washington Carver was one of my favorite Americans. If you've read anything about his life, he was an amazing individual. And in my mind, for two reasons, because on one hand, this guy was a, a towering intellect. He was a genius. I mean, you know, we look back in, in American history, at least, and wider history, but Carver was a genius in, in biology and agriculture. He was nothing short of that, on one hand. And on the other, he was a guy of unusual humility and grace. And this is his epitaph. He could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honor in being helpful to the world. I love that. This is a quote from Carver. He said, When I was young, I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. But God answered, That knowledge is for me alone. So I said, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. Then God said, Well, George, that's more nearly your size. And of course, that became his life. And he spent the rest of his life developing the, ab the abilities 
of that <clears throat> tiny peanut. And you know, when I have my super crunch peanut butter today, I still think of George Washington Carver. Here's something else about him. He bought, he carried out no patents on any of his works or any of his processes. He gave it all away. Because he said the credit and the benefit of those things he didn't think should go to a single person. He really did see his gift and his calling in life to benefit the world around him. And it was Carver who helped save agriculture, especially in the South during the Depression and before when farmers needed a new way to get their living. What a great life. He had a clear sense of his place in this world and he knew what success and failure looked like. Compare that with an individual Jesus talks about in Luke 12, 16 through 21, Jesus tells them a parable. He says, the land of a rich man was very productive. So he said to himself, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones. Then I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required. In other words, your life's over now. All those plans for the future, not going to happen. Who will own what you have prepared? And this is the bottom line there. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, what does rich toward God mean? It means at least this, that you've got a relationship with Christ. If you and I, like Solomon, have the wealth of the world and can indulge in every pleasure we have for a hundred years or a thousand, and we die without Christ, we'll say we had nothing. We had nothing. We had a transitory pleasure that was soon here, soon gone, and over. So at least being rich towards God means having a relationship with God through Christ. But it also means valuing the things that God values. Valuing the things that God values. Let me share just a few suggestions in closing on what this might look like. You guys probably have your own list. If I want to live like I'm dying, value the things God values. Here's a, here's a short list I came up with. One, be quick to forgive others and quick to ask forgiveness of others when you've been in the wrong. There is no way, no way, no way you can live life well if you're carrying grudges and bitterness and unforgiveness from the past towards others. Unforgiveness is like a poison that poisons your soul. And unforgiveness is like a weight on your back and there is no way you can carry these things and live life well. And on the flip side, if you're someone who offends others and never apologizes, you lack humility. And God is opposed to the proud. So be quick to go to others and apologize and ask for their forgiveness when you've been in the wrong. Uh, don't take yourself so seriously that you miss out on joy and laughter along the way. Uh, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs both talk about this, but... Uh, laughter is like medicine. We need seasons of the soul where we're just refreshed and encouraged by good times, by good, honest laughter, by joy. We need those. If we're too serious, it makes us dull. It, our soul becomes small. We need a good mix of all those elements of life. Uh, invest in other people. And this could look like anything. This could be young, old, 
could be black or white. It could be smart or dull. The reason I say this is people are the only thing on this planet that lasts forever. You know, everything else on this planet, everything will be gone one day. Second Peter says, this globe will burn up like a cinder and it will be gone and everything on it and in it. So the only thing you and I can invest in that lasts forever is other people. You know, we talk about in a down economy, 5% CDs or 20% returns in the stock market or whatever. You know, these things, they're insignificant in the long run. When you invest in another human being, you are making an eternal investment, investment that never ends. This is kind of a no-brainer for me. Another one is live generously. We'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but just briefly here today. Live generously. You know, it's easy to fix our minds and our souls on things like guys, uh, cars, houses, hunting, I mean, stuff like that. Gals, it might be, I don't know, homes, books, I don't know. I'm not good on this. I don't know. But just the thing that uh, the human heart and soul is too big to be contained by things. And so we need to live generously like God because it leaves our souls free before God. So when we're generous and open-handed towards others, we're freeing our own souls to live big, to live well, rather than becoming a small person contained by the things around us. Pray often and pray regularly. And a disclaimer on this as soon as I say it. When I say pray, I'm not talking about wearing your knees out. I'm not talking about dull, tedious lists in which you pray for Aunt Mabel and Uncle Ted and everything else. I'm not talking about being a hermit. I'm just saying this. Talk to your dad regularly about the things that concern you and the things that concern other people that you know and care about. That's all I'm saying. And it can be short. And you can have a conversation in your living room and you can say, can we stop and pray? And you can say, Lord, bless so-and-so and help them with whatever. And that can be it. And that's good. When you and I pray, we remind ourselves in God's presence, we're not adequate for this life we're living. But He is. And we dump those loads that we otherwise accumulate on our soul and in our minds. We give them to God and we live free when we pray regularly. And we honor our dad as God. Because we're saying, we don't know, we can't do it. But you can. Pray regularly. Pray often. And I know I probably don't need to say this today, but read your Bible. Read your Bible. When you pray, you're talking to God. You're unloading your heart to Him. When you read the Bible, you're reading His Word to you. He's talking to you. And guys, this is the thing. We get the sense of purpose and calling through the Word. We get the sense of what God values when we read what He values in the Scriptures. We cannot live well. We cannot live well in view of dying if we don't know while we're here what God values, what's important. So read the scriptures. And for you, I don't know what this looks like. Everybody's a little different. And it's a conversation. The scriptures have inherent truth, but it's also God's conversation to you. So read it in a way that's helpful for you. If if reading Genesis to Revelation is helpful, do it. If skipping around is helpful, that's fine too. But read your Bible so that you're hearing from God. If you and I are going to spend the short time we've been given on this earth well, we must live like we're dying. 
Let's pray. Lord, there is wisdom to be found in the house of mourning. And when we stand at the graveside of a loved one or we attend a memorial service, Lord, like nothing else, it reminds us of our own mortality. Father, help us to take these things to heart. Help us to live each day as if it's our last. Lord, help us to live big on one hand, generously before you and others. Help us to give short accounts, Lord, to confess our sins quickly to you, to forgive others quickly. Lord, I pray for each of us here today that we will live in such a way that we will have no regrets at our death, whether that's tomorrow, next week, or next year. And Lord, help us to live in a way that we rejoice to see you face to face so that you can say, well done, that you can give us that commendation that we would love to hear. Lord, help us to live wisely, to live like those who are dying. In Jesus' name, amen.